You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. I don't think there's a reason right now for the federal government to spend any money on any fossil fuel adventure. I have said repeatedly to the government over the capacity market design, the objective of that policy should have been security of supply at lowest cost to customer, not maximize the fossil fuel subsidies and let the customer pay for them. For November 10th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. One of the perennially confusing questions about the pace and trajectory of energy transition is why the major groups who publish projections on it consistently seem to undershoot reality. For decades, public sector agencies like the U.S. Energy Information Administration and the International Energy Agency, oil industry groups like OPEC and BP and Shell, consultancies like BNEF and IHS and Wood Mackenzie, and even environmentally focused nonprofits have consistently been too pessimistic. In one semi-famous study, at least in energy transition, transition circles, the group whose projections for solar deployment got closest to the mark was Greenpeace, and by their own admission, their methodology was pretty rudimentary, applying a simple compound annual growth factor. But why do standard energy forecasting models keep getting it wrong? Earlier this year, a group of researchers at Oxford University published one of the most original and interesting studies I've ever seen on the future trajectory of energy transition, which may offer an answer to that question. They say the problem is that standard models fail to account for learning curves in manufacturing and exponential growth in deployment. Using a new approach to modeling, which is really remarkably simple in its approach, although quite complex to demonstrate, they have shown that by modeling the learning curves for energy transition solutions like solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, and hydrogen electrolyzers, their future cost and deployment curves can be modeled quite accurately just based on the first five years of experience. After that, their curves tend to be consistent and can be used to make quite accurate forecasts for the adoption of those technologies. But what makes their demonstration particularly exciting isn't just that they've found a better approach to modeling. What makes it really exciting is what the model shows, that a rapid energy transition is actually likely because it would be cheaper than not transitioning, a lot cheaper, around $14 trillion cheaper to be precise, and that's in direct costs before even counting up the cost of externalities and other indirect or uncounted costs. In short, the researchers have found that there is no cost to the energy transition, and that on the economic merits at least, it's basically inevitable. So I was very pleased to have one of the researchers join us for a deep dive into this new modeling approach. Dr. Matthew Ives is an economist and complex systems modeler at Oxford University, who is currently researching sensitive intervention points for accelerating progress towards the post-carbon transition. In today's discussion, we'll explore exactly how their modeling was done, exactly where traditional modeling has gone wrong, and what it all means for the energy transition. This paper actually got a fair amount of attention in energy transition circles when it first came out, but all the coverage of it that I came across was pretty shallow. So I'm truly excited to share this interview with you today. Then in the news segment, we'll note a novel move against combustion emissions in California. We'll look at the latest EV sales figures in key markets around the world, and we'll recognize the latest report from the IEA. And now, our interview with Matthew Ives, recorded September 28th, 2021. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Matthew, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. 
Today we're going to talk about a paper that you and three colleagues published at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the University of Oxford titled Empirically Grounded Technology Forecasts and the Energy Transition. And this is one of those rare academic papers that seem to garner a significant amount of instant attention amongst those who closely follow the energy transition. And I assume that's because it actually offers a very hopeful message. So let's dive in and see what it says. To begin with, it uses a fairly unique methodology, I think. Instead of constructing a comprehensive model of all sorts of energy technologies and modeling how their use might evolve over the coming years, as energy transition models often do, it starts by modeling the learning curves of various technologies. So can you briefly explain how that modeling worked? Sure. I imagine some of your listeners out there are thinking, well, how can we model technological progress? Well, actually, as my co-author, Don Farmer, has seen over the last decade that he's been researching technology improvement rates, these rates tend to be quite persistent once the technology is established. So it's actually possible to model their improvement rate for any given technology reasonably well if you have at least five years of experience on that technology. Obviously, the more data you have, the better you're going to be able to forecast its improvements. Most people have probably heard of Moore's Law, which is applied to the exponential cost declines of computing power. So we've applied something fairly similar to that. It's another empirical law known as Wright's Law, which relates the cumulative production of a particular technology as a proxy for experience to cost declines. These are consequently known as experience curves or learning rates. So a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with those. Most technologies don't actually improve much through time when they're inflation adjusted, but there are those that do like computing and genomics and what we're finding with renewables. So they can be modelled fairly well by a variant of either Wright's Law or Moore's Law. One reason why we're using Wright's Law is that it has some fairly obvious policy implications that the more you deploy a technology, the cheaper it becomes. So once it's established, the technology appears to be quite persistent in their improvement rates. But one of the other key points is that technologies change at very different rates, different learning rates, different percentage changes of their cost through time as you deploy more. And what we've done that is the key contribution to that. Many people have applied rights law in the past. But we've provided a ability to estimate a probability distribution associated with those future technology costs. So we go back in time and look at how well we could have predicted what happened through time on a particular technology. And from that, we can come up with a probability distribution associated with that cost and found that to be that the past record of a particular technology is the best forecaster for the future cost declines of that technology. We tested this method out for about 50 different technologies from chemicals to energy to hardware, optical fiber, transistors, and the results confirmed pretty well that the predictions are robust and reliable. So we've come up with a methodology that can make good predictions for long-term growth of established technologies. Finally, the first author on the paper, Rupert Way, led the application of this methodology to the energy transition. So modeling endogenous technological growth in energy systems actually been around for some time. But what we've done is novel in that we've applied empirically grounded probabilistic technological forecasts that I've just described 
to that global energy system model. And it was a model that was custom built to really focus on the key role that technological progress can make in our energy transition. So interesting. And you've actually tested this now and modeled 48 different technologies from chemicals to energy to hardware, like optical fiber and transistors. And so by identifying the correct percentage rate of change, and just to kind of revisit Wright's law here, it states that for every cumulative doubling of units produced, costs will fall by a constant percentage. So if you can identify what that percentage is for a given technology, you can forecast it pretty reliably into the future. And so you've actually done this for 48 different technologies, which I think gives you a very solid basis to work from. So what can this method tell us about the future costs of these different energy technologies? Yeah, so as I said, there's quite a few technologies out there that their costs haven't changed through time and entire range of which is materials and minerals and what we exploit out of the ground like coal and fossil fuels in general. They've bubbled around at the same costs when you adjust for inflation for the past 100 years. So the cost now is fairly similar to what it was 140 years ago. There's an explanation for that in terms of the fact that you've got to find more and more resources and go to more and more trouble and improve your technologies to be able to bring those harder to reach resources down to the costs that you used to in the past. So there's an explanation for these types of technologies. In contrast, technologies like solar, wind and batteries have been dropping at roughly 10% per year for the last 30 years. Mm. Whereas nuclear power, for instance, it's remained fairly stagnant or even risen in a number of countries, mainly around the safety concerns. So contrast that with solar prices that have fallen by a factor of a 1,000 over that same time. Wow. Okay, so how does your forecasting method compare to the forecasts of some major agencies like IEA? The International Energy Agency, yeah, they get a bit of a beating in our research, but it's somewhat justified, and it's not just us. Quite a few people have kicked up a fuss about their forecast because they've been consistently high in terms of the cost that they've predicted and also the subsequent deployment of these technologies for at least 20 years. So there seems to be a systematic bias in what they're doing. They've never been over-optimistic about the prices, put it that way. Mm. And as I said, they've been fairly well criticised already, but that doesn't seem to have changed their methodology, which to me is somewhat surprising. They have updated their cost to what they are now, and so now they're starting to say, yes, solar is some of the cheapest electricity in history. But in terms of their modelling because they don't include as much cost declines and as much deployment in their models, their long-term predictions for these technologies have systematic bias in them that prevents them from seeing the kind of low-cost future that we're seeing in our modelling. Okay, so it's precisely this learning rate that you're modelling in your methodology that you feel is probably lacking in the IEA strategy. They're missing this compounding of learning effects. Yeah, so if you can imagine, if they're not predicting dramatically lower costs, they're not feeding into that nonlinear feedback dynamic that you're talking about there, that the lower the costs go, the more people demand it, the more people demand it, the more you deploy it. Right. The lower the costs go, the more people demand it. And that feedback dynamic, if you look at that in the record, it's usually exponential. 
because it's a feedback dynamic. It's fairly simple. But what's problematic for them in those dynamics is being able to incorporate those in the types of models that they use. You know, it's very difficult if you've got a cost-optimizing model to include those nonlinear dynamics. You get multiple solutions. You get the system flipping straight over to these technologies, particularly if they've got an element of economic rationalism to them that says as soon as the cost gets cheaper, everyone uses it. Our methodology is quite different and relies on the progress of technologies through the various niche markets around the world, both regional and so forth. And and tracks that progress and then continues it forward, which I think is a much better way of reliably predicting the cost declines into the future. Gotcha. Okay, so now that we understand kind of how your methodology works and how it differs from what other agencies like IEA does, what can this approach tell us about the cost of energy transition? Well, it's fairly clear from the work that we've done, which is based on probabilistic technological forecasts. So there is a probability distribution associated with each of the technologies in the model. And our modeling where we've taken two scenarios, we've actually a number of different scenarios, but I'll focus just on two. One, which we keep the energy system in a similar sort of energy mix as we have it today, dominated by fossil fuels which is what we call the no transition or stalled transition scenario, which actually maps fairly well to the IPCC's SSP5 scenario, which is also now called the worst case scenario, but interestingly used to be called the business as usual case scenario. Yes, we've done a number of shows on that topic. (laughs) Right. Well, interestingly, when you look at it from the technological point of view, that scenario seems close to impossible because it relies on us actually unlearning most of what we've already learned about these new technologies, which seems highly unlikely. So contrast that to decisive transition scenario or very fast transition scenario where we basically just take the current deployment trends, which are exponential in their growth of these renewable technologies, progress them forward at that same rate for the next 10 years and then just taper them off to the background kind of economic growth that we assume in the model. And then we take the probability of the costs of those systems and compare those two scenarios and find that the decisive transition, the mean of the probability distribution has it about $14 trillion cheaper over the course to 2070 that we model it. But the median, because the distributions are log normal, that's probably a better test of the cost difference. That's about $26 trillion cheaper. Wow. So we should be doing it regardless. It makes economic sense to do this transition. So we would do the transition anyway, just on economic grounds alone, even if climate change were not a motivation. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. It's a fairly simple outcome of the modeling. But the key point I want to make is that it's based on probability cost forecasts, which, you know, a lot of these other models, they'll give you a projection, which is a one-off projection of where they think that cost will be. What we've developed is a probabilistic forecast. So it's the closest thing you can probably get to putting some sort of probability distribution to any particular scenario. I don't know if you're aware, but those IPC scenarios, none of them have a probability associated with them. They're equally as likely. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 
this has been the core of my critique of the IPCC framework is that it's not communicating anything useful about the probability of these various scenarios. And not only is RCPA 0.5 completely improbable in my view at this point, just given what we know about the evolution of the energy system globally, we know that everything is pointing away from some massive return to coal, which is essentially what RCPA 0.5 implies. But also, the framework as it exists in the way the IPCC has constructed its scenarios doesn't really tell you anything about the trajectory that we're currently on. And so that is what you have explicitly modeled here is the trajectory we're currently on. And that's what I really liked about it. Yeah, it's pretty shocking to realize, like, if I think as far as I understand it, I'm not a climate modeler, but I work with them. And the global circulation models that do the climate modeling, they are required to do some validation of their model against past historical record. Mm. The integrated assessment models are not. They're not held to it. And if you look at most of the ones that are available today from AR5, they start the model run back in 2010, I believe. And the trajectories get it completely wrong in most of the scenarios in terms of what happened over the last 20 years. But they're not evaluated based on that capability at all. I think people have tried to do that, but one of the key problems is that's not how they're built. They're not built to incorporate some of these dynamics that we've got in our model that we are able to be more confident in, in predicting the cost declines. Yeah, for those of us that are just watching what's actually happening in the world and not living in this rarefied world of climate modeling, it's a real head-scratcher, that disconnect. <laughs> Well, okay, so then you use all this information to construct some scenarios. Why don't you tell us about those scenarios and what they showed? Yeah, so there's two key scenarios that we've got, which is the no transition scenario, which, as we said, is like that RCP 8.5, SSP 5 scenario, the worst case scenario. The world continues to grow at a background 2% useful energy growth rate that it has historically, but we don't change the energy mix. So... By the end of the century, we've got very small amounts of renewables. So we didn't construct that scenario for it to be realistic. We constructed it in order to do that cost-benefit analysis against the fast transition scenario. So that fast transition scenario has exactly the same economic growth. So in our model, we don't have to necessarily worry about decline in economic growth or energy demand management in order to reduce the energy usage they will always be more cost effective in many situations than we have in our model so our model could actually be even more cost effective if we use some of that demand management but we didn't include it in this modeling explicitly just to try and make it as simple as possible to get to this core argument about technological progress and so we compare that fast transition where we take the rates of change of these key technologies, solar, wind, batteries and electrolyzers, and progress them forward at their same rate for the next 10 years before we taper off and they start to dominate the system. And that fast transition basically decarbonizes the entire energy system within 25 years. And over the period to 2070, ends up saving us trillions of dollars. So we get to, to go to enormous lengths, you know, in terms of close to 80% of our emissions dealt with 
and we save money doing it. I mean, it's an absolute no-brainer. There's going to be a lot of work done in ramping up our capabilities of bringing renewables and electrifying everything. But in terms of the economics of it, it's a bit of a no-brainer based on this analysis that we've done, comparing that fast transition to the no-transition scenario. Okay, so let's dive into the details of these models here a little bit. You know, exactly how did you construct these scenarios? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On October 9th, California outlawed the sale of small gasoline-powered engines that produce less than 25 gross horsepower, which would include lawnmowers, weed trimmers, leaf blowers, chainsaws, golf carts, specialty vehicles, portable generators, and pumps. It does not apply to on-road motor vehicles, off-road motorcycles, all-terrain vehicles, boats, snowmobiles, or model airplanes, cars, or boats. The ban could go into effect as early as 2024, or as soon as the California Air Resources Board determines it is feasible. After that, all such new equipment sold must be zero emission, effectively meaning that it will all have to be electric, either battery-operated or plugged in. Electric alternatives for all of these devices are currently available that can generally meet their duty cycle requirements on a single charge. California has already required all new car sales to be zero emission vehicles by 2035. Item 2. More than 9 out of 10 new cars sold in Norway in September were either electric or plug-in hybrids. The vast majority, 8 out of 10, were all electric. Less than 5% of new passenger vehicles sold in 2021 were gasoline-powered, with a slightly smaller percentage of diesel cars. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show. Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant. And Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.